Okay, if you've got a Bible uh, handy, turn to Romans chapter 12. And we're continuing our sermon series um, through the book of Romans. So today we're looking at Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 3 to 8. And this is another uh, outworking of uh, what we looked at last time where, you know, in view of God's mercy, we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, uh, holy and pleasing uh, to God. So let's hear um, from Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. This is the word of God. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, the one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes, in generosity, the one who leads, with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Amen. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we want to do your will, and for that we need to know your will. And so we pray that you would open our eyes to see uh, what you are telling us in this um, passage, and Father, that you would give us your spirit, that he would be poured out into our lives so that we can uh, put into practice uh, what we learn, that we might be the people that you have saved us to be. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so Romans is all about the gospel of God. That's been our theme all the way through. It's a theme that Paul has stated right at the beginning of the letter. And uh, the gospel, what is the gospel? The gospel is that good news that sinners can be put right with God by the work of Christ. And Paul spent 11 chapters explaining the gospel to us. And he answered many of the objections that, that we might raise. But 11 chapters of explaining the gospel. And then when we get to chapter 12, Paul then changes and he starts to unpack what it looks like to live out the gospel. Okay, if you have received Christ by faith, this is how you will then live. Uh, that's what chapters 12 to 16 are all about. And today in verses 3 to 8, we see that if you believe the gospel, that that actually brings you into deep communion and interdependence with other people who believe the gospel. Okay, we were brought into a community of believers. And the image Paul <coughs> uh, uses, <coughs> excuse me, the image Paul uses to explain the kind of community that we become by believing the gospel, the image he uses is the human body. So a human body is a single living organism, and yet it's made up of many, many, many parts, all working together, all supporting each other, 
so that this single living organism can be healthy and grow. And Paul says that's actually a picture of the church. The church is the body of Christ. And we see in this passage that you actually can't belong to Christ without also belonging to his body. And as we'll see in the passage, none of us can be all that Christ has saved us to be if we remain independent of the local body of Christ, the local church. We can't be all that Christ has saved us to be unless we are deeply connected and contributing uh, and interdependent with other believers in a local church. Now, to have that deep communion with other believers in a local church, this passage tells us we need to do three things. Okay, We need to let the gospel reshape the way we think about ourselves. We need to let the gospel reshape the way we think about each other as part of the church. And finally, we need to let the gospel reshape uh, how we go about serving in the church. So there are the three things this passage teaches us. So let's have a look at those three things. First, we need to let the gospel reshape how we think about ourselves. And you see that in verse 3, where Paul, uh, he states there, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So this verse, this verse is actually about one of the main things that I struggle with, and I'm assuming one of the main things you all struggle with here too, and that is thinking too highly of ourselves. Uh, we have a tendency to have an overinflated opinion about ourselves. Uh, this is one of the, the, the effects of uh, sin that still dwells in us. You know, we're not free from the presence of sin yet, not until we're glorified. And so because sin is still remaining in us, we are so prone to thinking that we are more important or more capable or wiser than we actually are. Okay, another word for all of this is pride. Okay, pride makes us think we are more important, more capable uh, or wiser than we actually are. And there are all kinds of reasons why we might do that. You know, we might look at some of the achievements that we've made in our lives and think that that makes us a cut above everyone else. So we might look at the level of our education and then compare it to everyone else here and think, well, I'm a bit higher educated, so I must be smarter than everyone else. Or we might look at our, our success in business and think that makes me a, a greater strategist or <clears throat> uh, better in, in some way, in that way. Or we might look, we might have a more respected career than others, uh, which comes with a higher income. And so we can look at all of these personal achievements and think that makes me better uh, than others. Or it could be some particular factor about ourselves, like our personality type or our upbringing or our gender or our age or our looks or our political views or even our perceived level of, uh, level of sanctification. But whatever it is, it's the same issue in all of these things. We're looking at something that we've achieved or something that we've obtained and we're thinking that that, that achievement is what makes me better or more superior than others. 
Uh, we do it by comparing ourselves to one another. Now, the reason this heart issue is such a problem, and the reason Paul starts with that when he's talking about you know, belonging to the body of Christ, is because if we're thinking too highly of ourselves, it actually undermines the body. It undermines our involvement in the church. Because if we're thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, we won't be the community that Christ has saved us to be. No, we won't be that community who are serving one another and contributing and working with one another for the glory of God and for the advancement of the gospel. Instead, what will we be doing? We will be comparing ourselves to each other. We will be competing with each other. We will be working for the glory of ourselves and for the advancement of our own ego. That's why this is such a danger. And we can actually see this heart problem exposed whenever we feel upset if we don't get the recognition we think we deserve or whenever we are jealous towards someone else, someone else's gifts or achievements or where there is a lack of openness to learning from each other, a lack of appreciation for the gifts and abilities of others within the body. And so if we're thinking of ourselves too highly, <clears throat> it means that we will be uh, too independent and not open to listening, learning from and relying on uh, one another like we should. Now, surprisingly, Paul doesn't say the remedy to thinking too highly of ourselves is to think lowly of ourselves. I think that will be the conclusion. We think, okay, well, instead of thinking high of myself, I'll start to uh, speak lowly of, our, of myself. You know, we might get around saying, you know, I'm just a good for nothing or something like that. That's not the answer here. What, is, what does it say in verse 3? Instead of thinking too highly, we should think with sober judgment. And sober judgment, so, what does sober mean? It means to be clear-minded. It means to be in touch with how things truly are. You know, it's the opposite. If, if you were drunk, you're not in touch with the way things are. You're not thinking clearly. Uh, you're not self-aware, but sober is to be those things. And since Paul's going to go on to talk about how to use our gifts in the church, then to think with sober judgment is all about being very aware of what we are really like, you know, what our strengths and weaknesses actually are. To think with sober judgment means recognising what you are good at and recognising where you can contribute in the church. But it also means recognising what you're not good at and where you need to appreciate more the gifts and abilities of one another. And, of course, thinking with sober judgment means realising that no one gift makes you more important than everyone else in the body. And see, that's surely something that the bloke preaching to you right now needs to fight against every day. But it's also something that those, especially in leadership positions, need to embrace because uh, if you ever get pride into a leadership position, that is a deadly combo. Okay, Pride is what destroys leadership. And uh, it's something, though, that it's not just those in leadership, but all of us, we need to think soberly about 
ourselves and about our strengths and weaknesses because that's the only way we can be a helpful presence uh, in, in the local body, the church community. So how do we do that then? How do, how do we think soberly about ourselves? Well, notice the answer at the end of verse 3. It says each should think according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And that just means to think of yourself in light of the faith that God has given you. Okay, your faith in Jesus. What does your faith in Jesus tell you about yourself? It tells you that although you are a sinner and deserve nothing good from God, God in his grace has loved you, he sent his son to die for you, and that through faith in Christ you are justified, Christ's righteousness has been credited to you. So God now looks at you as if you're Jesus himself. That's what your faith tells you about yourself. The measure of faith tells you that you're valued by God not because of anything good you've done, but only because of his mercy. And see, when, when you think of yourself in light of that, you know, the measure of faith, well, that deeply humbles you because you realise it's, it's not about achievement. Okay, You're included in the body not because of anything good in you, not because of anything good you've done or could do, but because of God's grace. And so it's grace that actually is really the death blow to any high thoughts of ourselves. So you think about it. If God included us into his family based on our abilities, based on our achievements, then all of those who were high achievers and who had great abilities would feel superior to everyone else because that would be the basis for belonging. But because the basis for belonging is nothing good we have done but the perfect work of Jesus, then that means anyone can belong and it means that no one is more worthy than any of the others. And see, that's the foundation for unity. Okay, When we all remember who we are in Christ, that is the foundation for unity and that's the foundation for acceptance of others and a willingness to serve rather than being served. See, it's only the gospel that can make us a community of people who aren't competitive, a community who, who aren't sectarian. The gospel makes us a community where worldly statuses are irrelevant. You know, who cares about level of income? Who cares about respected career? Those things, they're not the main thing here. What's the main thing? Who you are in Christ. Okay, and when that's what we're all excited about, when that's the thing that we rejoice in and glory in, then you've got a community who can truly be united. We're serving others regardless of their status in life. It can truly happen. You know, a community like that is one where you're able to welcome anyone regardless of their background. And the way to achieve that is to always remember who we are in Christ, which means whenever we fall back into having too high thoughts of ourselves, it's because we've taken our eyes off Jesus. Uh, there was a... Uh, a Scottish pastor by the name of Robert Murray McShane who uh, made this famous quote. He says, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And when he said that, he was talking about um, when you're feeling guilt, you know, when you feel 
wretched because of your sin. He said, you know, for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ because Christ is the solution to your guilt. Now, his righteousness is what makes you right with God. But we can equally apply that statement to when you look at the good things that you can do in life, you know, the things that you're really good at. For every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ because that's the only way you'll stay level-headed about the things that you're good at. Otherwise, what will happen? Overinflated ego. The only thing that will keep us level-headed about ourselves is who we are in Christ. And that's what will free you from self-importance. That is what will free you to serve. It will free you to put the needs of others ahead of your own, to consider others greater than yourselves. Okay, Who you are in Christ is what will give us the freedom to actually experience the deep community, the deep communion that Christ has saved us to experience. So that's the first thing. We need to let the gospel reshape how we think about ourselves. Secondly, though, we see here <clears throat> that we need to also let the gospel reshape how we think about each other, how we think about the church, the local church. And you see that in verses 4 to 5, where Paul goes on, uh, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So this is where Paul makes it very clear that if you belong to Christ, you, you do belong to the body of Christ. You do belong to the church. Okay, you, can't, you can't have Christ as your saviour and then just kind of exist independently. To, to belong to him is to belong to his body, the church. And this, this illustration of the body, it is absolutely brilliant. It is so helpful for us to think through. So you just for a minute, th think of your body for a moment. And uh, think about, uh, let's, let's take the thumb uh, as an example because it's easy to get out and uh, hold up. Um, now, let's just imagine that the thumb decided, you know what, I'm sick of doing thumb things. I'm sick of um, having to do what thumbs are supposed to do. Uh, I'm going to go off and live my own existence, just do things my way, and everything will be fine. Now, what would happen to the thumb if it did that? Well, first of all, it couldn't survive because it's disconnected from the body, so there's no life anymore. But not only that, can a thumb be a thumb on its own? No, the, the thumb only has purpose when it's attached to the body, when it's working together. See, a thumb on its own is not a thumb. It doesn't work. But a thumb working with the body, then now it has purpose. Now it can do all that it's been designed to do. And see, Paul says individual believers are just like that. You're just like the thumb. Can you exist independently from the body? No, there's no life. There's no health. Can you have purpose apart from the body as a Christian? No, because you were designed, you were saved to be part of the body, to contribute uh, to the body. That's why if you look at the verse again, look at verse 4. As in the body, sorry, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, here it is, so though many, we are one body in Christ and individually 
members of one another. Okay, we belong to one another. We're members of one another. And another way to put that is to think about our union with Christ. Okay, through faith we are united to Christ spiritually. Jesus gave us so many illustrations for that. The vine and the branches is one of them. Uh, the body and the head. He's the head. We're the body. See, we're spiritually united to Christ. But here's the thing. If I'm spiritually united to Christ and you're spiritually united to Christ, then together, together what are we? We're united to one another in Christ. See that? We, we belong to each other. We're connected spiritually to each other. And so to be members of one another means there's a sense in which I belong to you and you belong to me. And we exist to serve each other. And like a human body, the body of Christ has many members, many individual members, and the members do not all have the same function. Okay, what's that saying? It's saying there's a lot more to a church than, than a preacher and a musician. Okay, there's, there's a lot more. There's lots of members, and all the members have uh, a different function. Every individual has a part to play. And it also means that every member has something unique to contribute. Every single member of Christ's body has something unique to offer, which makes sense because think about you as an individual. You are unique. Now, you've, you've got a unique personality, a unique temperament, unique experiences in life, you know, a unique history, unique abilities, and all of these things equip you to offer something that no one else in the body can offer. Okay, you're all unique, which means you all bring something unique to offer the body. And without your contribution, what happens is the body misses out. The body can't be all that's meant to be unless every member is contributing uh, the unique aspect that God has equipped you to give. Now, remember when we were in COVID lockdowns? Now, maybe for some of you that's a horrible thought. It was a, a terrible time. But just think about it. When we were in COVID lockdowns, we were all cut off from each other. And my question is, was it possible to be all that Christ had saved you to be while we were separated like that? Was it possible? I mean, we still had sermons on TV, uh, mind you. We still had uh, fellowship meetings and prayer meetings, remember, on Zoom. Uh, they were horrible, <laughs> uh, looking back. Um, but see, without that in-person interaction, uh, there was just so much missing. It just didn't feel right. It didn't work. And, you know, without being able to actually serve each other through the countless ways that the body of Christ ministers to each other, we could not go on like that for much longer. Okay, the church cannot exist online. That, I think that lesson was well and truly learned. Uh, we can't actually be all that Christ has saved us to be in isolation. We need to interact. We need each other because every member has a part to play. Now, just on that, one common complaint that is often brought up about local churches is that, yeah, every member is meant to have a part to play, but in practice what happens is that 
80% of the work is done by uh, 20% of the members. I wonder if you've ever heard that complaint before. You know, the majority of the work is done by the minority. And uh, I actually think that that is a massive over-exaggeration because it's thinking about church work in very limited terms. Uh, later in verse 8, Paul's going to talk about exhortation, which is just encouraging each other. And that's something that goes on, you know, in thousands of ways that we don't even see. Okay, it's always happening. And so I don't think it's right to say 80% of the work is done by 20% of the members because the work is broader than just leadership positions and, and um, you know, doing things like those two guys over there in the corner. Uh, but there is something to learn from that statement. And the thing to learn, I think, is that there can be a consumer mentality when it comes to church, when it comes to being part of a church. There can be this consumer mentality. And the reason for that is because we do live in a culture that is consumerist. You know, we live in an individualistic consumerist culture where we tend to only commit to things for what we get out of it. So what happens in our consumer culture is that uh, as soon as the personal cost of being involved in something becomes higher than, than the personal reward, what do we do? We take our business elsewhere. That's how consumer cultures uh, work. And so in a consumer culture, we apply um, I don't know if you've heard of the cost-benefit analysis. Uh, we, we, we take the cost-benefit analysis and we apply it to everything, not just financial investments, but we even apply it to relationships. And so we do a cost-benefit analysis of a relationship. You know, am I getting more out of this relationship than I'm putting in? That's how cost-benefit analysis works. And if we feel like we're putting more in than we're getting out, what do we do? We get out of there. It doesn't feel like it's a viable investment. And uh, that's probably why divorce is so uh, common in consumerist cultures, just as one example. But that's the mentality in the consumer culture. Am I getting more out than what I'm putting in? And see, that consumer mentality has come into the church. There's no doubt about that. And so what happens is you can have people who think, I'll commit to this church so long as what I'm getting out of it is higher than what I'm putting in. And the result is a reluctance to get too involved, a reluctance to invest too much in case the cost is too big. And uh, as a result, we do end up with uh, most of the work being done by fewer than the whole. And so this, this picture of the body, you know, one living organic body, where all the members are doing their work, it's not functioning as it should. It's unhealthy, okay, because not all of the parts are working. <clears throat> so let's just take this cost-benefit analysis. Let's take this consumerist mentality and let's measure it against the gospel and see how it stacks up. Okay, I sure am glad that Jesus didn't do a cost-benefit analysis of the cross because if he did, he would not have gone there because the personal cost to him was far bigger than the reward that he got, right? When we think about Jesus going to that cross, when we hear him say the Son of Man didn't come to be served but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we hear him saying that, we know not only is that the guarantee of our eternal salvation, but we now see that the consumerist mentality has nothing to do with the Christian life. Okay, Jesus turns the cost-benefit analysis on its head. For those he saves, serving, giving, investing, that's the way of life for believers. Because individually we are members of one another. So just like in a human body, the only way a thumb can be healthy, the only way a thumb can have purpose is when it's attached to the rest of the body. It's the same for believers. The only way you can be healthy as a Christian, the only way you can have purpose is if you are attached to the body, if you are serving in the body, if you are being all that God has equipped you to be. And so without this commitment, without contribution, you're actually missing out on all that Christ has saved you to be. Okay, you're actually missing out. The real enjoyment of being part of the body, the the real sense of purpose can only come on the other side of serving, which means if you hold back, if you stay uncommitted, you'll never know what real community actually can be like. The community that Christ has, has brought about through his own blood. It's right there, but you'll never know it until you serve. That's why Jesus actually said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you believe him? Do you believe that it really is more blessed to give than to receive? So there you go. The gospel has to reshape the way we think about ourselves. And it has to reshape the way we think about how we belong in the church and what our role is in the church. And when we let it do that, that then leads to the third thing that we see in this passage, which is that the gospel shapes how we actually go about serving. So how how do we go about serving? We'll have a look at verses 6 to 8. Because here Paul, he calls us to exercise the gifts that God has given us. And Paul lists seven gifts. Uh, this is just a, one of a number of um, gift lists in the New Testament. And if you look at all the gift lists in the New Testament, you realize that they're not all the same, that there's uh, you know, a huge variety. And it shows us that not every list is supposed to be exhaustive. Okay, so there's, there's plenty more. But, but this list, I think this one's particularly helpful because uh, it's broad enough to, to capture everyone. So let's have a look at the list. Uh, it says in verses 6 to 8, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service, that's the second one, in our serving, uh, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So there you've got seven gifts. What do they mean? Uh, let's just quickly go through that, just so you know. So prophecy means to speak God's word. And I don't think that's how we normally think about prophecy. We normally think about it as predicting the future. But that's only one very limited 
uh, aspect of prophecy that only happened on very unique occasions. But the word prophecy just means to speak and apply God's word, which is um, something, if you hadn't noticed, I'm doing right now. <laughs> I'm prophesying, uh, speaking and applying God's word. Now, serving <clears throat> is just doing practical tasks that support the work of the gospel. So straight after the service, there's going to be all this serving going on, you know, serving tea and coffee. Uh, serving happens in thousands of different ways in the church, you know, working bees, board meetings, on and on, all of this stuff, what is it for? It's to support the work of the gospel. That's serving. Now, teaching, teaching is helping someone understand Christian doctrine. So if you could see out that window now, you'd see it happening right there. Look at that. There's teaching going on out there, teaching kids about the Christian faith. That's teaching. Uh, exhortation. That means to encourage others in the faith. And we're going to do that very soon, aren't we? As soon as the service ends, what are you going to do? You're going to seek each other out to encourage each other in the faith. Uh, the one who contributes, that's supporting gospel work financially. The one who leads is someone who plans and motivates uh, others in the advancement of the gospel. And acts of mercy are deeds done to help those in need. And everyone, every one of you here who belong to Jesus, you can find yourself in that list. Okay, You can find a gift in that list that you have because that's the list is broad enough to include you all. You're all captured in the list. Uh, and if you look at the list, some, some are teaching gifts and some are serving gifts. Okay, Some are speaking, some are more hands-on, some are more public. Some are more private. But every believer can find themselves in that list. And, and you need to understand, God doesn't expect any of you here to do something that doesn't fit who you are. Okay, God is not expecting those of you who are more hands-on to, to have to take on a speaking role. Okay, that's, that's not how it works. The gifts he gives means it's something that you, you can do and that you enjoy doing. And obviously there's going to be all kinds of factors and uh, circumstances that will impact how we go about exercising the gifts that God has given us. You know, we're not expecting 90-year-olds here to run um, youth group games on a Friday night, uh, nor are we expecting those of you who have full-time jobs to be spending hours and hours of, of doing ministry every week. Okay, obviously there's going to be uh, you know, work commitments, family commitments, health conditions, all of these things are going to impact how you go about using your gifts, how you go about serving in the church community. But even when we take all of that into account, it's still true. You've been given a gift and you have to use it. You've got to exercise it in, in whatever capacity uh, God has given you. Even if you are bedridden, which none of you are here today. But um, when you are, you can still exercise the gift of serving just by praying for the work of the gospel. And remember, God is not expecting any of us in this room to exercise all of the gifts. Okay, some of us need to really hear that. <laughs> Maybe the guy standing right up here. We can't do it all, okay, because it's a body. That does the work. The only person who has all of the gifts is Jesus himself. And he gives them, he distributes them 
to each one. You know, the verse says he gives gifts that differ according to the grace um, given us. So a good question to ask each other after the service is, um, you know, say to each other, what gift has God given you? And that might open up some good conversation about how you can get more involved uh, in the work of the church. But Paul's main point here, it's where he says uh, in verse 6, whatever the gift is, let us use them. That's the main statement. We've got to use them. God doesn't give us gifts to be like a stamp collection where you put it all away and it's all hidden out of sight. No, he wants us to use them. They're not given for our own personal benefit. They're given that we might serve, that we might contribute to the, uh, contribute to the, the whole. And, uh, and so we see here, the body needs you and you need the body. That's really the main point in the end. Uh, we cannot, I've said this already, but I'm going to say it again, we cannot be all that Christ has saved us to be unless we are deeply connected and contributing to the whole. That's how a Christian survives. A Christian does not thrive independently, but only by being connected. And that's how a church thrives. A church can only thrive when each part is doing uh, the work that God has equipped you to do. And so what, what is your part to play? What is the gift that God has given you? Where do you see yourself on that list? Okay, I'm helping you to think because someone's going to ask you about it later. Uh, so where do you fit in? Right? If you're still completely stumped and you look at those seven things and go, I have no idea where I fit on that, what do you do? You just serve. You just look for opportunities. But you don't need an official position in the church. To, to be able to serve. Okay, if you look at these gifts like exhorting, serving, con contributing, uh, acts of mercy, they're things you can just do as you see the need. And then through doing that, you realize, uh, you know, I enjoy doing this and God has gifted me to do that. And uh, that might then lead to an official position. Um, but just serve. And then beyond that, like obviously there's gifts like, um, you know, preaching, teaching, those sort of things. Uh, if you want to explore those, then um, the best thing to do is talk to either me or one of the elders and, and we can work that out with you uh, and see how you can get involved in those sort of ways. But here we see if you belong to Christ, you belong to the body. If you belong to Christ, you have been equipped to serve the body. And that means from God's point of view, there's no such thing as a Christian who is disconnected from a local church. And from God's point of view, there's no such thing as a Christian who has nothing to contribute in the local church. See, Christ, he came to serve by giving himself fully. He didn't think too highly of himself to do that. And therefore, our response to all that he has done for us is to give ourselves fully to him and to give ourselves fully to each other. And so may God empower us to do that. May we be all that Christ has saved us to be. Amen. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful picture of the body. And we thank you, Father, that it's, it's uh, such a wonderful plan because it shows how, how much we uh, need each other, that we're, none of us can be uh, independent, none of us can think that we don't need anyone else, that we can be self-sufficient. 
But we thank you most of all for Jesus, for his giving himself to make uh, the church, to, to be able to bring us out of uh, darkness and into this light, uh, from being lost to being found and to being part of your family. We thank you, Father, for the joy and privilege that it is to belong to the body of Christ. But we do pray, Father, that uh, the gospel of grace, that you would help us to get that into our minds and our hearts so that we do believe uh, all that Christ has done for us, that that would humble us, Lord, to realise that we're not part of the body because of anything good in us, but because of how great Christ is. And we pray that that would uh, change us, Father, that we would be able to serve and to be able to care for each other uh, in a humble way. Lord, we pray that uh, that we would all be serving well, that we would be a healthy church, that we would be a growing church. And, Father, that our the result of our work would be <clears throat> the glory of your name, uh, but also the advancement of the gospel, uh, not, not just here in this building, but um, beyond, out into this community and into the world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.